If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. You are listening to The Terroir Podcast on Paris Underground Radio. Did you know that Leon thinks that the Alps belong to it? Nobody told the Alps that, though. (laughs) This week, we are heading into Caroline's backyard. So we have a distinctive, varied landscape bordered by Burgundy, Switzerland, the volcanic Auvergne, and Provence. Welcome to the Rhone Alps. The, uh, this region is amazing. So this is my, where I live, this is my region. The Alps actually belong to me. I am Caroline, otherwise known as Wine Dine Caroline. I run Lyon Wine Tastings here in Lyon, culinary capital of France. And I'm so excited to be presenting this uh, series. We're doing a three-part series with Emily. Emily, why don't you introduce yourself? That's me. I'm Emily, um, the original Emily in Paris. Uh, I am a food tour guide and journalist based in Paris, so not the culinary capital of France, Uh uh, but the capital. And I'm really excited to be delving into this gorgeous region with you, Caroline. It is one of my favorites. Well, it's an interesting thing, and I appreciate you letting us talk about this region in the first season, because I know I've been harping on about Lyon the whole time, but it is just the best place. I've been here for four years now. I'm obsessed. And, you know, in this episode, we are going to really talk about the Alps. And it's funny, when you're in the Alps, yeah, they don't know that they belong to Lyon. But when you are in Lyon, you can see them like on a clear day. I live on top of a hill. On a clear day, we can see straight through Mont Blanc. Like I can see Mont Blanc. I can see the whole Alpine mountain range. It's all right there. You don't see it every day, but when the weather is good, you can see it. And you can usually see them in the morning. And when you can see them in the afternoon, it means it's going to rain tomorrow. Oh, I like that. Yeah. So I love the Alps. I love seeing them. It just tickles me every time. And like real talk to get into the best ski resorts, like for me to go to Courchevel, if I hopped in my car right now, it would take me about two and a half hours. Ugh. See, okay. I am not mountain people. I wish I were mountain people. <sighs> I wish I were as cool as mountain people. And I, I, I house sat for for Caroline and dog sat her beautiful, phenomenal, affectionate dog, Buffy, and just wished I was as cool as mountain people someday. I'm definitely mountain people, but you're beach people, right? I'm beach people. Yeah. I don't, I, you know, I'm mountain people. I, I love the mountains, but I particularly love the Alps. I was actually a chalet girl. I was a chalet chef in the Alps in the winter of 2013. So I feel really connected to that part of the world and I'm obsessed with Alpine food. So Right. So Alpine food. So this region is really cool because we're basically between two mountain ranges, but we're going to focus this episode on the Alpine side of the Rhone Alps. So everybody knows, or everybody's probably heard of the Alps. It's a mountain range shared among France, Switzerland, and Italy. And so there are, you know, a lot of shared culinary specialties across the Alps. And so essentially that's because you know, as we've talked about before on this podcast, for about 400 years, this area was its own thing. It wasn't part of France. It wasn't really part of Italy. It was the Duchy of Savoy. So Duchy of Savoy basically extends, you know, from what is currently France. So cities like Annecy, it didn't go as far as Grenoble, which we'll talk about in the future. It included Italian cities like Turin and Asti, but it didn't go as far as Genoa. And it even at one point extended as far as Nice. So this is a big area. It did include Lyon. It did include Lyon, exactly. Yeah. And are we going to call it Savoy or can we please call it Savoie? Okay, we can call it Savoie. I, this okay. is like my my issue with like whether to say croissant or croissant. In English. I just tre- t- tend to avoid referring to them as often as possible. No, I, we got to call it Savoie because okay, Savoie. We, we just have, it's funny. Here in Lyon, you do see sometimes, you see like graffiti that says Libre Savoie, like they want to be an independent country again. And you see it all over. It's pretty funny. 
And I mean, yeah, I think, I think that it's, it's, I mean, it's like we said, it's mountain people. It's, you know, this historic linked to an area that no longer exists from like a governmental standpoint, but definitely still exists and persists in the food and the culture. So when we talk about Savoyard food, we're talking about something that I absolutely love. So as with other regions, when we say like à la Provençale, we're talking about something that has like, you know, tomatoes and, uh, eggplant and courgettes when we're talking about a la basquez we're talking about you know tomatoes and peppers a la normande we saw a couple episodes ago means with cream or with apples a la savoyard generally means with cheese it's a fancy way like if you're like mm, i'm gonna have you know a cheese sandwich you could call it a sandwich a la savoyard and feel really fancy but we're not just talking about any cheese in this region. We're talking specifically about the kinds of cheese that are really popular in the Alps. So this is pressed tum style. So T-O-M-M-E or the older word is T-O-M-E cheeses, which basically is, a, is linked to the word for tile in French. So like floor tiles. Weird. So they're pressed. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's weird. Pressed, you know, blocks of cheese. And that when you say pressed, what... Does that mean from like a texture standpoint? Because I think a lot of people don't really know the cheese lingo. And and these are like, just to clarify, these are pretty big cheeses, right? Oh, yeah. Okay, so this is actually kind of cool. So essentially the original Tum cheeses, the big ones, come from a region that we're not going to venture into today, but it's the Franche-Comté. But they're made kind of in the same style all across the Alps, whether you're in Switzerland or in the former Savoie or you're in Franche-Comté. But basically what it is, is you collect a lot of milk, you get your cahier, so you separate your curds in your way. And then because water is the enemy of cheese conservation, because water essentially makes cheese go bad more quickly, you press down on the curds so that you're expelling water. Like kind of if you imagine like your curds of cheese are like a sponge full of liquid and you mm -hmm. kind of press out some of the liquid. So you end up with something that has a pretty dense, compact texture. And that's something that then can be aged for a really long time. So the idea behind these cheeses originally comes from you have a bunch of farmers who are maybe going to have like 12 or 20 heads of cattle. And if you're pressing all the water out of your curds, which you do in the mountains when you're mountain people, because you have long winters and times where you can't make cheese, you end up with lots of little tiny cheeses. And that's just a lot of work. It's a lot of like turning and brushing the rinds. And it's just like a lot of time. So they sort of select someone. They're like, hey, you, Jean-Paul, you're going to be our cheese guy. And everybody brings their milk to Jean-Paul and Jean-Paul makes like 120 pound giant wheel o cheese and then they sell it together and reap the benefits together. So that sort of cooperative for cheese is called a fruitière and that's sort of how a lot of these big tum style cheeses are made in the Alps. That's super interesting. And I think it's something, you know, we talked about in our Bordeaux episode, a negociant in wine, how we're allowing sort of different tiers of this process to do their own thing. So we have the the guys with their cows. They are not expected to also then make and sell the cheese. These are different skill sets. And when we're dealing with these huge cheeses, they, they take up a lot of space. I mean, it's just a different thing. So I know we'll talk about that more when we talk about Conte, which is like my favorite cheese of all time. But I just think it's really cool. And yeah, it is this cooperative community thing. Yeah, totally. And, and I think like you're absolutely right that you're allowing the person who they're, you're allowing people to, to, to do what they do best. And what's cool about that too is it allows you to scale production up. Now, I know that that scares a lot of people because we love this idea of like small artisanal producers. But if you go back to like the smallest, most artisanal, it's a family. It's, it's you know, the dude raising the cows. His wife is like raising the chickens in the Bascour, as we talked about in the Périgord. And she's making cheese and maybe making like home fermenting some beer. But this is cheese that like they're going to eat themselves. And if they have a little bit extra, they'll like trade it with their neighbors because they're they don't have enough eggs. Like if you actually want these products to leave their region, you need to entrust some, you know, the the distribution and sale and marketing of these products to someone else. And I'm not saying to, that, that you then need to go to like industrial scale factories, but in sort of moving up a little bit in the world, you end up with wines like Bordeaux or cheeses like which is, you know, France's favorite cheese becoming really, really popular. But of course, Conte is not part of this episode. We're going to talk about it again <laughs> in the future. So shut up, Emily. Shut We're not talking about Conte. I We're talking Conte. about <laughs> other Savoyard cheeses. 
Um, but we do have a lot of really similar cheeses in this area. And we do have a lot of weird kind of naming conventions because, of course, the Alps is a natural geographic border, but we also have the border between France and Switzerland. And Switzerland is very famous for its cheese. And we don't necessarily make exactly the same cheeses on either side of the border, bearing in mind that we are kind of using the same technology and the same techniques. You know what Switzerland's famous for? What? Being boring. <laughs> Any Swiss people who want to fight Caroline, come on over. I'm just kidding. I haven't been to Switzerland in years except to drive to the airport, which is a fucking nightmare. The last time I was in Switzerland, I went to Bern and participated in this like Bernese tradition where you jump into the river that's in the middle of the city and like float down and like you leave all your shit just like on the riverbanks because it's Switzerland and like no one's going to rob you. And I was just like this for as a native New Yorker does not compute. Like I can't, <laughs> I can't figure this out. Okay, that doesn't sound boring. That sounds really fun. No, it's actually really fun. But okay. So we do have this very specific cheese called Gruyère, which was recently, there was this whole thing in America about like whether you could call Gruyère style cheeses Gruyère, which is a similar issue to what we've talked about in other regions in, in France of, you know, are you allowed to call Camembert Camembert if it's not made in Normandy? Spoiler alert, yes. Are you allowed to call Champagne Champagne if it's not made in Champagne? Absolutely not. Only right? in Russia. Only in Only Russia. Only in no. Russia. <laughs> yeah. Well, they allow a lot of things that we don't really condone on this podcast at all. We so. don't talk about Russia. That's probably smart. But we do have a weird naming convention in France, which is that there is a cheese in Savoie called Emmental de Savoie. And it looks like what you imagine when you think of Swiss cheese. It's a big cheese with like a semi-soft, but mostly hard texture with giant holes in it, right? It looks like the cheese that like mice are always after in like cartoons. Uh-huh. But it's not a Swiss cheese. It's a French cheese. It's Emmental de Savoie from the French side of the Alps. It's made in Haute Savoie and Savoie. And in a move that boggles the mind and pisses off a lot of Swiss people, in France, we often call this cheese Gruyère. It's not Gruyère. It's not made in the town or in and around the Swiss town of Gruyère. It doesn't even really taste like the Gruyère cheese that Americans now want to call Gruyère, even though they're not making it in Gruyère. It tastes like Swiss cheese. It's probably the most common cheese in most French kitchens. They buy it like shredded in bags. They use it the way that we Americans use like shredded cheddar um, or like shredded Mexican blend, like on top of their gratin and casseroles and like, you know, in their omelets and everything. Oh, they and put it on pasta. It's disgusting. It's so weird. I hate like cheap Emmental. I think it's disgusting. I think it tastes like like pencil erasers. It just is like a weird waxy texture with it's not salty enough. It has no flavor it's except sweet. like a little it it's it's it it has a sock vibe. Like it the only energy it brings to the table, like shredded shitty shredded Emmental, the only the only thing that brings to the table is like a slight whiff of dirty gym socks. Yeah. And it melts. That's like the only it's only uh, what do you call that? Valeur. It's only quality is that it's melty. Yeah, no, it's terrible. French people. It, it melts. That's all. They fucking love it. It's, they put it on everything. They, they don't, like, I remember when I was living in the north of France, they didn't have Parmesan in their fridge. They had grated Emmental. And when they had pasta, they would take this like little bag out of grated Emmental and put it on their pasta. And I really, I don't even like Swiss cheese that much. Like not Swiss cheeses, but like the deli style Swiss cheese. Like, no, thank you. And this, I just, I just cannot get behind. But it's the thing that you'll find if you get like a, a cheap croque monsieur, it's Emmental. If you get like a cheap grocery store frozen pizza, mm -hmm. Emmental. Ugh. If you buy a cheap takeaway pizza, Emmental. And you pay upmarket for mozzarella. Terrible on yes. pizza. It's the worst. I'm glad we are in agreement. I am too. Yeah. So welcome to the Terroir Podcast where we shit on your local cheese. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Because there are actually... Any French person is sitting there crying into a bag of shredded Emmental, <laughs> eating it straight from the bag with their finger. No, with a fork. You can't eat with your hands here. Oh, no, you definitely... Well, I think the only thing you're allowed to eat with your hands here is um, asparagus, I was told, which is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. It's so weird. Okay. I know. But I, I have bones to pick with a lot of the purported etiquette rules in this country. So whatever. That's for another podcast. That's for day. navigating the French when you definitely should do an episode on etiquette. I think that would be amazing. 
I am I'm actually very thrilled by the idea of an etiquette episode of Navigating the French. If anybody doesn't know what Navigating the French is, plugging it here. It's my podcast where I talk about a different French word each episode with an expert and try and see what it tells us about French culture. It's the best. Need to know what's going on in Paris this week? Make sure to check out Don't Miss This on Paris Underground Radio. You'll learn about events, museums, restaurants. You'll learn about all the cool stuff that's going down in Paris in the coming week. Now it's time for a word from the sponsors of the podcast. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And now, back to the Terroir Podcast. We do have other pressed tum cheeses here that I do love that Thanks are more similar. I know, right? So these ones are going to be more similar to Gruyere or to Conte. But what I kind of prefer, and I know we're, we're probably going to have a fight over this, I actually kind of prefer the Savoyard tum style cheeses over Conte. I know, shock horror, because they are a little funkier. Conte is really nutty. I love Conte. Conte is my favorite. And I say this as someone who's obsessed with the Savoie. Like I want a chalet in the Alps one day. I love it. But I'll still take Conte over, say, you know, an Abondance or a Beaufort any day. Okay. And whereas Abondance is like, pressed cheeses are probably my least favorite. Like if I had to give up a category of cheese, if I was like, you know, held at gunpoint and they were like, choose a cheese you can no longer have, I'd pick pressed cheeses probably. But Abondance is my favorite of the pressed cheeses. So it's a smaller pressed cheese, all things considered. Each wheel is like only about 10 kilos, which is like 22 pounds. That's bigger than my dog. Right. (laughs) Yeah, it's still big. It's just smaller than a lot of the other ones. And its name, so Abondance comes both from the valley of Abondance, which means abundance, which is lovely, and the cow that lives in the valley of abundance, which is also called Abondance. And this cheese tends to have like a little bit of like funk to it. Like it's a little footy in a really pleasant way. And I really like it. Then you also have Beaufort, which is much bigger, sort of more the appropriate size uh, of the region. Uh, So it's 40 kilos. So that's like 88 pounds. Um, And it's made with uh, like a blend of different milks from different cows. So you can have Tarentaise, Maurienne, Beaufortien, which is the cow that gets its name or gives its name to the Beaufort cheese. And so that's a that's a pretty cool one as well. But these are also the names yeah. of the valley. So I lived in the right. Tarentaise Valley. There's the Beaufortin Valley. And Beaufort, Beaufort, I would say, is the biggest one. I mean, Beauforts are huge. But they also, can I tell you a cool Beaufort story? Please. The Beaufort, the side of it is concave. So a Beaufort is like this big, huge round, but the inside, like, it comes in, right? Mm-hmm. And... It's because they used to tie a rope around the cheese to like haul it back up the mountain. Oh my God. Amazing. (laughs) On the back of a horse. Yeah. And like drag it because they're so big and heavy. They're so heavy. 40 kilos is super heavy, but before is, yeah, it's a big deal. I mean, these are the, these are the cheeses you need in your fondue and you might not have all of it be one of those big cheeses, but you want it. You want to mix if you're, if you're doing fondue, right? Yeah. Fondue, actually, I want to shout out to the, there's an NPR podcast. It's something about money. Is it good with money? Is it bad with money? I'm bad with money. Is it, <laughs> I'm that. bad with math. That's why we have this podcast. There, I'll, We'll link to it in the show notes, but there is a really awesome episode of the NPR podcast that delves into the fact that like 
the reason that fondue exists in the first place is because of like Swiss cheese monopolies that developed during World War II when the Swiss were neutral and they had to like sell their cheese to themselves. So it's this whole thing about how like, yeah, probably Savoyard people have been eating fondue for a really long time, but it only became like a thing after World War II, which is why it was like such a capital T thing during the 70s. That's so funny. So we'll link to that podcast. There's a lot of research. It's really cool. It was very, very nerdy and I appreciated it. So we do have other Tum cheeses. There's one called Tum de Bourges, which I really like that has like a gray rind um, and it looks a little scary, but it's delicious. There's also a lot of like Tums that don't have their own, like there's just like, you know, farmer, whoever, farmer Robert is like making his Tum. So there's a lot of just like Tums that don't have their own names. I recently discovered one that is made with sheep's milk, which is really nice and kind of, I guess, rare in the Savoie. I kind of think of cows more in the Savoie than sheep. Yeah, we're definitely more in cow territory. And one really fun thing is the the town of Bourg-Saint-Maurice. Every autumn, they have a big festival where all the cows come down from the mountains and um, come back to the town for their winter lodging. So a really important thing here that I think everybody needs to understand is there is a difference between summer and winter milk. Summer milk tastes like wild mountain alpine flowers and it's incredible it's floral and like delicate and it just has this like herby floral thing i said floral twice because it's super floral because they're these happy cows munching wait, wait. on wild Is flowers it floral? it's floral <laughs> and they really they were like up in the high mountains and then they bring them all down in the autumn and um, we should go this year that'd be really fun oh we should go yeah. if you want to see us hanging out with wildflowers and cows cow parade well they come down in the autumn when the wildflowers have already been munched but the milk in the winter is nuttier and less complex and less highly prized so you you see beaufort d'été beaufort from the summer and that is definitely a lot more expensive it's a lot more highly prized yeah definitely and you have estivaz i think is a similar situation which is like the it's a cheese that's made exclusively with summer milk yeah so yeah, so we have like a whole bunch of different Tum style cheeses that are pretty similar to the ones that are being made in Switzerland. Uh, then we also have some washed rind cheeses up here and we piss the Swiss off yet again because we make <laughs> our own raclette. So raclette, let's be quite honest here. First of all, raclette, if you are not, if the word is not jogging anything in your mind and you hang out on Instagram or TikTok and you've seen people scraping large quantities of melted cheese off of like some big wheel often at food festivals onto like a plate of potatoes or like a piece of bread or like you know into their hands that sounds messy that's raclette that sounds painful it's hot it, it sounds it sounds really painful and also super delicious but i digress <laughs> directly into your mouth <laughs> directly <laughs> scald your tongue eat uh -huh. cheese directly from the source so it's this cheese that like let's not uh, what do they say in French? They say, let's not mix up our paintbrushes, but let's not, you know, uh, lie about it. It's it's definitely Swiss, but the French- Really? Make I did not know that. Yeah, yeah, No, it's 100% Swiss, but the French make their own. So we have the same thing. It's kind of like when we stole Edom from the Dutch, but that's our Northern episode. So <laughs> not today, but we, we basically took the raclette recipe and started making our own. So the Swiss raclette has had an AOP since 2003. Savoie only has the IGP, which is, you know, the AOP, AOC Jr. kind of. It's like a bigger next sort of step down in terms of, not necessarily in terms of quality, but in terms of prestige and specificity. And it tends to have a bigger region, right? And a little more flex. Okay. There we go. So. Sorry, not flex. A little more flexibility. Oh, I thought you meant a little more flex. Like, here we are. I'm no. IGP. No, the AOP has more flex. The yeah, totally. IGP has more flexibility. Uh -huh. So um, so basically in Savoie, uh, where we have the IGP, we, we make about 3,400 tons of raclette a year. In Switzerland, in the area where they've protected it, they make about 2,000 tons a year, so in the Valais. But then they make 10,000 tons elsewhere in Switzerland. Wherever it's coming from, it's delicious. The French absolutely love it. In the winter, you often have like a raclette party and people will have these like raclette machines that they set up at home. And so rather than having this big half wheel of cheese that you actually scrape the cheese off, which is where the word raclette comes from. Raclette in French means to scrape. So you get this like wooden paddle. You hold your cheese up to a heating element or sometimes 
is you're actually in like a real Swiss chalet, like up to like a fire, it melts the side of the cheese and you scrape it onto potatoes and charcuterie and it's delicious. It's really mild. It's really not very funky. It's it's buttery and melty and wonderful. I love raclette. Yeah, it's so good. In France, you actually can buy this little thing where you have like a tiny little frying pan where you put like a slice of raclette in and you heat it under this element. The French eat about 800 grams of raclette a year each in this fashion. It's a lot of cheese. It was my downfall. I made a mistake. Back in 2007, I was living in Cannes, which is not Alpine country. It's not mountain people. Uh, It was spring. Definitely not the appropriate time to be eating raclette, especially not in the south of France, where in spring it's already like 70 degrees out. And some friends and I decided to go to this restaurant called Cana Suisse, where they have raclette and they have like baskets of potatoes suspended from the ceiling and like a big raclette apparatus. And it's like this whole thing. And I ate so much raclette that while the rest of my friends decided to go out like dancing afterwards, I had to take myself on a long walk home, like a very, very deviated walk because I just over, over indulged in the raclette. It's so fucking delicious. Oh my god, that's pretty funny. Yeah, uh, it's definitely a seasonal thing that you deserve once you've had a lot, uh, well, a lot of exercise skiing. I think. Yeah, it's it's a definitely an après ski thing, mm-hmm. and so is tartiflette. So tartiflette is another sort of après ski dish that you find in this region. It's made so it's got a fun name because the word for potatoes in Savoyard dialect is tartifle, which I think is fun to say. Tartifle. And it looks like it should be a really ancestral traditional dish so it's basically like boiled potatoes that are like sliced and tossed with bacon and onions and sometimes cream and then topped with a reblochon cheese which is a kind of a cool cheese that was invented by farmers trying to like tell the tax authorities to do one so like in the 13th (laughs) century the farmers were tithed by their landlords based on how much milk they produced and so the day that the landlord would visit, they would undermilk their cows and be like, oh, this is all the milk we've got. It's poor us. And so their tax would be lowered. And once the landlord left, they would milk their cows a second time. And the second milking was richer and they would use it to make this cheese. And they called it reblochon because the local uh, patois, the local dialect, reblocher, the verb, meant to milk a cow twice. So like blocher was to milk a cow, reblocher is to milk a cow twice. I love that. So... The cheese is super traditional, but the dish actually isn't. So there's this accusation that in the 80s, there was like a glut of this cheese. There was too much. They couldn't sell it all. And so the Roblochon Guild came up with this recipe to try and sell uh, Roblochon to Parisians who were like, ooh, it's traditional. It's like an old fashioned like dish, whatever. And so... They thought that they were making this really, really traditional dish, and turns out that it was just invented by the the cheese guild. Now, I talked to the cheese guild about this, and they vehemently deny it, but like that is par for the course, right? Like they wouldn't want people to know that that is so funny. Yeah. How did you hear about that? So it's in a book. Um, it's the uh, gastronomic encyclopedia of French food, which is, you know, my fun Saturday afternoon reading. And you know the the guy who wrote the book sort of said, you know, this is when it was invented. And it makes sense. You know, that's, that's what we were talking about with fondue. That's kind of how fondue was invented. It's like, oh, we have all this cheese. What are we going to do? I know, sell it to like urban people who think they're coming out in the countryside to get some traditional dish. Well, it's also this moment where skiing is like blowing the fuck up. And like, we have the Winter Olympics in Albertville in the 80s. Like it's, you know, the 70s and the 80s were big in the Alps. A lot of development there, a lot of money coming in, probably the most money that had come in in you know hundred years, you know, so right. So it makes sense. Um, it's just funny. I yeah. mean, we there are like ancestral baked potato and cheese dishes, of course. Um, like there's one specifically called a pela, which is made in like a long handled frying pan, but it's just like potatoes topped with cheese, which I don't think you need a recipe for. Like it's literally like what do you do when you're like a poor Savoyard? And bearing in mind too, potatoes in France, like in most of France were not eaten until like the middle of the middle of the um, 18th, early 19th century, because they were part of the family of nightshades. And so as we saw in our Provencal episode, like French people thought that nightshades were poisonous. 
and they were a new world vegetable and we mostly fed them to pigs. But because the Swiss were already eating potatoes at that time, in Savoie, we were eating potatoes long before they were eating them in the rest of France. And there's this guy, Paul Montier, who was an agronomist who tried to get the French to eat potatoes. And he basically did it by like marketing and my favorite, th- he did a couple different things. Like he asked the king and queen of France to like wear potato blossoms in their like wigs and in their buttonholes. But my favorite thing he did was he planted a potato patch in the royal gardens. And then he hired guards to guard the potato patch. And then he hired mercenaries to come steal the potatoes to make people think that they were so sought after that someone would come and steal them. That's beautiful and brilliant and fucking weird. I, I love it. I mean, people, people are fucking weird. <laughs> what a creative mind. That's very strange. If you're enjoying this episode of the Terroir Podcast, you may also be interested in our sister podcast, The Heart of You, where expert Annette Delu teaches you how to get in touch with your innermost manifestations and desires. The Terroir Podcast will be right back after a word from our sponsors. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And now, back to the Terroir Podcast. Now, cheese obviously is not the only specialty that we have in this region. And I think there is one liqueur that I'm really excited to hear more about from you, Caroline. And that's... Genepi? Is that how you say Genepi, it? Genepi, yeah, Genepi. I love Genepi. So, well, actually, that's a lie. Most Genepi is garbage. But the good <laughs> stuff, the good stuff is good. Genepi is, uh Genepi is just, takes me back to being really drunk in uh, the Alps during my ski season. When you go do a ski season as a worker, you are there to party, ski, and maybe work. I was a cook, so... I was running this chalet. I was the chef and I, and I would definitely, I was more on the party side, but Genepi is a digestif. So you would drink it after dinner and it's something that is super traditional. It's been there forever. It is a green, well, the crappy ones are bright green. It's really sweet and it's made from wildflowers grown on the highest mountaintops. So there is some industrial Genepi, but I mean, you really don't find it much. It had a moment of popularity. I kept seeing it in San Francisco, but because Dolin, uh, D-O-L-I-N, they imported, they made one and they imported it into America and like gave it to all the bartenders. We're like, oh, this is so cool. And I'm like, I knew about that years ago. <laughs> but have you had it? So no, I'm not. Um, the French are super obsessed with their like digestif, their Dijon. I'm not a fan of Dijon. Like I usually keep drinking wine. So I haven't tried this. And the only Dijon that my French friends drink is that like uh, Jet Vincent, like the mint one. It would tastes like uh, Listerine. That's why you don't like it. That's horrible. No, Genepi is like, it's really sweet. It's it's sort of medicinal, but it's really floral. And you you do shots of it at the bar at two in the morning. Or if you're civilized, you would have it after a meal. So it dates back to medieval times. It would have been made you know, at home and it's used to treat gastric problems. It was, it was a medicine to treat gastrointestinal issues. There are five types of genipe flowers. They're little white flowers, but only the yellow genipe is used for this. It can only grow between two and 3,000 meters above sea level. So that is 6,500 6, feet to 10,000 feet above sea level. So you, it's up high in the mountains. It is wildflower. It's actually illegal to pick in Switzerland. But in France, you are allowed to pick 100 sprigs of it per person per year. And you will get in trouble. Who's keeping track? The Dwen. 
Really? The, yeah. Yeah. It's a big deal. It, it has a pretty short season in the summer, but basically you can go, you can pick it and then you macerate it in, um, you know, in, in spirit and add sugar and, and you've got it. So yeah, Genepi's really fun. If you can get your hands on it, it's something you would have, you know, a sip, a little shot of after dinner to sip on. And it is, it is coming up more and more in cocktails now. Okay. Does it taste anything like Jägermeister? It's, it's definitely better than Jaeger. And it's not, okay, I mean, Jaeger's like brown, right? Yeah. It's something, if you are a drunk person in your ski resort, it's something that you could have as opposed to Jaeger, but it's more special. It's so specific to this part of the world. Jaeger, I think, is is more mass produced. You can't mass produce Genepi because it's made from a wildflower. Like right, literally, okay. I mean, in, in Switzerland, it's illegal to even pick them because they are so, they're very rare. Okay. So it's really special. So when you were a drunk ski person mm-hmm. and you were also the chef, mm-hmm. what the heck were you cooking? Oh, I um, I actually had a great gig. I had a beautiful kitchen with an incredible view and I just made whatever I wanted. So we, I wouldn't make fondue and stuff like that because on my one day off a week, that's when they would go and get fondue, the guests. But yeah, I had to do breakfast. Then I'd have to make a little cake. Afternoon tea it was British people who were coming over. They, they, okay. The Brits know how to ski. They come over, they pay for like a chalet with a chef. And then there was also a host. So I had, it was me and Maxine. We also shared a room. Fun. Literal twin beds in a room. Um, we had a window in our room, so that was lucky. But uh, yeah, we worked a lot. But um, I would have to make an afternoon tea and I would always make American stuff, which everyone got a kick out of. And then I would do a four course meal. One of those courses was cheese. But I don't know. I just made whatever I wanted. Uh, I did, you know, do like short ribs or. Just, awesome. I did like a chicken name. Mean, it just depends. I, I had a lot of freedom. So I got to be chefy, which was fun. And I learned fun. how to cook for 16 people on a hangover at the drop of a hat. So if you ever need a party person, I can whip out a meal for a large group in uh, in my sleep at this point. Love that. <laughs> well, one of everybody's favorite hangover cure meals, if you're not as practiced at cooking four course meals with a hangover as Carolina is actually comes from this region. And it kind of reminds us how close we are to Italy and that's crozé. So crozé is a pasta that's like local to Savoie and it's a little square pasta. Like it's not any fancy sort of shape. It's like little flat. It's like, imagine if you took like linguine and or tagliatelle and like cut it into squares. Yeah. They're, li- they're tiny. They're little tiny. They're like sequin sized. They are. They're sequin pastas. Yeah. Oh my God. I love that. They're actually pretty hard to cook. Well, I can't eat them. I'm, it's fun fact. I am not allergic to very much, but I am deathly allergic to buckwheat. Find out more about how I figured that out uh, on our forthcoming Brittany episode, which features me passing out in front of a caravan of very hot rural firefighters and waking up in an ambulance with a country doctor in his dressing gown. That sounds- And he actually had the little black bag and everything. That sounds like a great story. So uh, I can't eat these, but apparently they're great. They are good. Yeah, you have to um, cook them right. You have to cook them a lot. And often they kind of, they can kind of like become mushy, but they're kind of chewy. They're good. And yeah, you have them with, with cheese. They're they're kind of a funny color too. They're kind of gray. Uh, I like them though. I mean, yeah. I think it is important to, to remember that Savoie included a lot of Italy. So when you are in, you know, for example, where I was, which was Saint-Fois-Terrentes, you know, when you ski at the top of the mountain, your phone is like, welcome to Italy. And there's a lot of pizza here too. There's a mm-hmm. lot of, you know, Italy and France, again, like we talked about in the Provence episode, they're kind of, ar- you know, arbitrary modern concepts. And Savoie went from Lyon to Turin. Right. So you had this like wide stretch of shared culinary specialties, shared patois like languages and you see things like you know the the crozet which is like a very specific kind of pasta that's going to be quite different from like the pasta that you're used to but still a pasta so it's kind of cool to see those little like hints coming through in the food with the crozet they do i know make like a a version of tartiflette with with the crozet instead of potatoes so call it croziflette mm-hmm. and Flet is kind of a funny, weird suffix these days, which is like they that you can do it with any cheese and then they just change the names. Like you can make it with Marbier and they call it Marbiflet. That's cute. It's like they're getting a little ridiculous. Um, so so you can also eat Crozé with another local specialty, which is sausage. So we make a lot of charcuterie in this area um, and then a couple of fresh sausages as well. So one is called Pormonier which is made with lean pork and with green vegetables. So chard or leeks or spinach or even cabbage. 
with the idea being that this is a specialty that comes from Beaufort and the farmers would slaughter their hogs at the beginning of winter and then season or bulk out the sausages with whatever seasonal veggies were already growing in their potager. So, you know, green winter stuff. And the name comes from the fact that it used to be made with lung. So poumon. Ugh. Yeah, it isn't anymore. Now it's just a lean pork sausage. Um, and then we also have uh, dio sausages, which are little sausages, and they can be plain or smoked. They can be flavored with cheese. They can be seasoned with nutmeg, and they are often cooked in white vin de Savoie. Oh, yeah. Well, so dio, I would say that dio are very popular, easy to find. That's a thing yeah. you definitely see a lot of. I've never, had never heard of Formandier, but the dio are definitely widespread. Yeah, so there's a lot of wine here, and it's, well, there's not, okay, there's not a lot of wine here. I lied. There is You're a confusing big, us, Caroline. Sorry. <laughs> there is a big area that encompasses the Appellation, the, you know, AOC Vin de Savoie, but the actual vineyard area is, is tiny. So there are less than 200 hectares of vineyards in Savoie, where Bordeaux, for example, has over 100,000 hectares. So it's, it's a pretty big area though. There are a few random AOCs, but let's talk about the most interesting ones. And remember that we are in the mountains. We are in the Alps. We have a short growing season. So it is really important that the terroir is perfect. And I think the most important part about the terroir here is the aspect. So it's the direction that the vineyard faces. Okay. So if you are not facing south, south or southwest, you are, um, you're not going to get enough sun, right? So you need to be facing south to some extent, southwest, um, southeast could be okay if you are, you know, in a good spot where you're kind of sheltered. But the the site selection element here is really important because it is freaking cold and you have a very short season. So historically, these wines were, you know, prized locally. I don't think they ever really made it very far. And then in the 70s and 80s, again, when we have this like ski life boom, they are producing a lot more, mostly really cheap white that doesn't taste very good. It's acid water, um, not very interesting. And so they had a bad, they have kind of a bad rep, although that is changing. So I actually love the wines of Savoie. My favorite is uh, Roussette de Savoie. So Roussette de Savoie is the appellation. Roussette is also the name for the grape, which is otherwise known as Altesse. So you'll see Roussette or you'll see Altesse. And Altesse actually means your highness. It means highness. And yeah, this grape has the most beautiful story. Basically, it was always the fanciest grape in this region. And so people want meaning, you know, from from their wine. And there was a story that one of the Dukes of Savoie brought an Eastern princess, he, you know, over it to be his wife, and she had these grapes with her. So in some stories, she's from Jerusalem, in some stories, she's from Turkey, she's from Cyprus, but she brings over this incredible noble grape, Roussette de Savoie. When Roussette de Savoie is at its finest, it's super heady, floral, peachy, really beautiful. It has intense acidity, but it still has some nice texture. It's really good food wine, really good white wine. I fucking love it. And my favorite producer is Domaine du Pasquier, who are in the, the town of Jean Gilles near Chambéry. And you can, you can get that in America and in England. But what's funny is that in the 90s, when we started doing DNA testing on all these grapes to find out where they came from, uh, Roussette de Savoie comes from the shores of Lac Bourget. It's totally local. It is not from Turkey. Oh, that's so weird. I it's cute. I think it's funny. Um, and we, we see that a lot. We'll see that again next week with Syrah, which is also not foreign. But yeah, I love Roussette de Savoie. You can definitely see those a little bit outside of France. And yeah, they're delicious. But again, there's very little made. Then we have a vineyard area that if you actually drive out to the Alps from Lyon, you will go past this on your way between Chambéry and Albertville. There's like a free, the freeway goes right past it. There's something called a massif. A massif is basically a chunk of earth's crust that's a little bit smaller than a tectonic plate. So it's a big piece of earth that like basically just shifted up. So it's sort of cliffy and there's this corner. Have you ever taken that road? No, never. But now I want to. Well, you you must. We'll do it. So there's this like corner. It's literally, I'm like making a, a shape with my hands. And on one side of it, it's this really, really steep slope that's facing southwest. And then the other side of it is facing directly south. And on the, the top side, the southwest facing top of the corner, it's like a corner coming down into the bottom um, 
left. It's a bottom left corner. Does that make sense at all? Sure. If you're a square, it's the bottom <laughs> left corner. Got it. Yeah. If you're a square, it's the bottom left corner and the two sides that touch that. So okay. the top side, which is sort of southeast facing, is where the the Chinin Bergeron is. And that, and it kind of wraps around that edge. And that is a white wine that is actually made from the Roussan grape, which we will talk about next week in when we talk about the Rhone. But it's called Chinin Bergeron there. And it's a very different flavor than the Roussan we get in um, the warmer parts of France. It has really good acidity. It's pretty peachy. It's pretty neutral. It's not as aromatic as a Roussette. And then on the so- southern part, so on the bottom part of the square corner is Arbin and that's where the reds come from. So in Arbin we have Mondeuse is the grape. It's a really peppery grape. It's local and it's local to to you know to Savoie, to the mountains. You see a little bit of it in Bougie. You see a t- there's a tiny bit of it in America right now, but it's like vanishingly rare. And Arbin is yeah, this like black fruit, really surprising red wine from the Alps, but it can really only grow right there where you have this like maximum sun exposure. These are super steep vineyards that are basically like hanging off the edge of a cliff. It's pretty cool. So I love Alba. There's, I have some in my cellar. It's a really fun one, but it it really depends so much on weather and getting that ripeness. Then the one you're probably most likely to see the cheap one that that is the most widespread is Apremont. And that's the Jacquard grape. It's pretty much just very neutral, doesn't taste like much, and is all about acidity. Good for cooking. I'm sure there are some good ones. It's not my favorite. And then we also have a really interesting appellation called um, Aize. So A-Y-Z-E. And this is a really cool story. This one is actually much further north. We're actually up closer to like Geneva, past um, Chamonix, up, up, up into the deep mountains. And this is a place that was basically forgotten about. Like a lot of places, maybe your family grew some grapes. You also had, you know, pigs and grew other stuff and had a little farm. And there was very, very little area, very little, vanishingly little area with the grape Grignier, which is the grape local to this place. And in the 80s, uh, a man named Dominique Belluard, he went off to study he grew up there, but he went up to study uh, winemaking and came back and decided to like preserve the world's last vineyards of Grignier and make really good wine and, and you know, started really getting recognized for it in the 2000s, making really high quality wine, but they make sparkling wines here. So these are traditional champagne method wines. And it's because the, these grapes have killer acidity that they can really make fantastic sparkling wines. But, you know, this is another example, and we'll see it again and again, of how one person can lift up the whole region. So A's was irrelevant until Dominique Belluard decided to make good wine there. And now his neighbors see that they can learn from him. They can basically tag along and and make better wine and reach a bigger market because he was the pioneer. So I have not met him. I, I was supposed to, but the weather was was rough and we didn't end up actually going out there. But he uh, seems like a really nice guy. I would really like to go and visit that winery because I think it's really cool how those stories play out, you know? Yeah, that's super cool. Are you planning a romantic trip to Paris? Make sure to listen to Romancing in Paris, our podcast on the Paris Underground Radio by Lily Heiss. Now it's time for a word from the sponsors of the podcast. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And now, back to the Terroir Podcast. And I think this is a region that, like, we've kind of got our eyes on, at least in Paris. I'm interested to see what you sort of perceive as, like, the market attention towards it right now elsewhere. Because I know that in Paris, I was interviewing a seller owner um, who owns the Cap de Belleville. And he was telling me that, you know, oh, yeah, like, the the on-trend region in France right now, in Paris right now, is Savoie. That, like, the wines from 
Jura, which is right nearby, had gotten to be a little more expensive and the Savoie wines were still relatively inexpensive for the quality that you could find. And so like, oh, this might be like the next trendy thing in Paris, but I don't know if that's happening yet in the States or in Lyon where you are, or if they've kind of always been around in Lyon where you are because you're so close. I think they're definitely around here, but they're not super trendy necessarily. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I was seeing Savoie wines in London 15 years ago. Okay. But only at places that really knew what they were doing. Because again, they are cheap because they're not important. But, you know, in Savoie, it really is about the right producer. And there are more and more good producers. There are more and more young, tiny production producers who are doing cool stuff. That takes a little bit of time. But it's interesting you mentioned Jura, which we'll talk about in our next season. You know, Jura was a super underdog that then became really trendy because, again, the wine was interesting and it was cheap. So that's a story that that we'll see again and again. And I'm glad that the Savoy wines are getting more recognition and they're getting, that they're getting better also. Yeah. But stock your sellers now because they yeah. might start getting expensive. <laughs> I doubt it. I mean, they're, I doubt it. Too. You know, they're, they're so random. I mean, who knows? Maybe. And some of them, I mean, I buy one, I buy a single vineyard Rousset de Savoie from, from Domaine du Pesquier called Narestel that is downright tropical. I mean, it's wild what they, what they can get out of this cold place. And it's so good. And they don't even sell it for four years because it's got so much bracing acidity that it, it would be like drinking battery acid when it's fresh. So it, these are definitely ageable wines that are, are really interesting. Ooh, okay. I'm putting that on my shopping list. Mm-hmm. Well, once you've drunk all of that, we do also have something to rehydrate you in this region, <laughs> which is alpine water. So oh, the water tastes so good there. The water, okay, so I actually, so Evian is the most famous of the waters in this area. It's actually the best-selling water in France, but also in the UK, Switzerland, Norway, South Korea, Malaysia, and Brazil. Wow. Um, with one and a half billion liters sold each year, 40% of which is sold in France. But I actually went to the town of Evian, and they had little fountains in the middle of, I don't know if this is still how it works today, but they had fountains in town where you could bring your like empty bottles and fill up on actual Evian spring water and take it home with you. So it didn't run through the taps, but it, but you could get it in the, in the village square. That's funny. And so this is a water that was kind of like discovered as it were by a count called Jean-Charles de Lazier in 1789. And he basically went for a walk and got thirsty at the Fontaine Sainte-Catherine, St. Catherine's Fountain. And he was a sort of sickly dude who had liver and kidney complaints, which I have to just make a little asterisk here because we were talking earlier about Genepi and the French and their digestion. The French love to complain about very specific ailments. Like, (laughs) Like there's always something wrong with them. And it's like often digestion, but they're not like, oh, I have a stomach ache. They're like, no, I precisely have. So you, you go, you have a liver crisis when you've eaten too much fat. You have kidney pain when it's really just your back hurt, that hurts. And then you have like, everybody's co- constantly has like this, like, they're like, oh yes, the, for the digest, it's bad for the digestion. It's good for the digest. Like, I mean, I grew up, we, I come from a Protestant, uh, I'm not Protestant, I'm Catholic, but I come from a Protestant like country where I feel like it's like, we don't talk about are specific digestive ailments and the French have no qualms with it at all. So that's my little weirdness with the French digestion. But basically our count who had these digestive ailments drank the water at Saint-Catherine, decided that he felt better and suddenly this water was miraculous and everybody started coming over to drink this water because it, you know, cured all of their ailments. So um, it became a public company in 1859, and when Savoy was incorporate Savoie, when Savoie was uh, incorporated into France by the Treaty of Turin in 1860, it became a French company. And so now it's a very big company, and we drink a lot of mineral water in this country. Yeah, they love bottled water here, which is funny because they they also yeah they really they're do. also like super self identify as being very eco friendly. <laughs> yeah, that's true, and I would and like they also. I think they put a lot of, I think it's becoming less true as generations go on, but they put a lot of stock in how much drinking mineral water can help you with things. Like they're like, oh yes, one must drink mineral water for like the essential minerals. And it's like, no, you can get that from like eating Caroline's least favorite vegetable, which is kale. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to do that. So I'd rather drink mineral water. 
They do the second best-selling water, just word of warning to anybody who's coming to France, the second best-selling mineral water in France is Epar, which is H-E-P-A-R, and it's a water that has natural laxative qualities, it helps you poop. So don't drink too much Epar, you will be uncomfortable. I've never even heard of that. You'll notice it now. It's in a pink bottle because it's marketed to women because uh, we, we apparently like... have heart, a hard time pooping or something. Well, we, we're, we've been told that we're not allowed to poop in public and stuff like that. Right. Well, women don't poop. I don't know who you are, but... I smuggled a squatty potty from America back to (laughs) France over Christmas, so I definitely poop, and I'm proud of it. Excellent. Excellent. (laughs) The Terroir Podcast, where we talk about everything. Exactly. (laughs) Okay. Tell me about Sweet Thing. Yeah, Sweet Thing. So we do have some desserts here. The... What I'm not going to talk to you about is chocolate fondue. Chocolate fondue is a marketing scam that was invented to market Toblerone in the 60s. Really? That's funny. It's delicious, but it's not traditional. I mean, it's kind of pointless. I don't know if I'm into it. I mean, I could eat a chocolate dipped strawberry, but like, I don't need to, I'm not that big of a, I mean, I like, yeah, I don't like chocolate that much. Let's be honest. I know that everybody's going to hate me for that, but that's fine. Not that into chocolate. I love chocolate, but I refuse to eat out of season fruit. Like I, whenever I see something that's like wildly out of season on Instagram, it makes me want to go through my phone and strangle the person. I agree with you. I hate, I hate the only out of season fruit I'll eat is apples, which I only eat in seasons when there isn't a different fruit that I can have. That's interesting. So I don't eat apples in the summer, but I'll eat them all no. winter Why would you when, you when you have strawberries all summer? Why wouldn't you just gorge yourself on strawberries? That's what so, I do. Anyway, speaking of fall fruits, there is a dessert called risol, which is basically little turnovers that they fill with quince or pear or apple. And those are delicious. That's nice. Um, and then there is a cake called Saint-Genix, which is a brioche filled with something that I'm sure you see a lot in your city, pink praline. Yeah, we love pink praline here. So can I say what pink praline is? Please do. Pink praline. So praline is sugar plus nuts. That's what praline is. And often it's like crushed up or or even ground up into a sort of paste. But often it could just be like basically caramel, melted sugar coated nuts. But pink praline is pink. And the reason it's pink is no fucking reason. It's pink because food coloring. And it's this thing. It's everywhere here. And people are like, oh, pink praline. Everyone's like, ooh, why is it pink? What's that about it? I'm like, it's pink because it's pink. That's the answer. Yeah, it's kind of, and it's so funny because it's become so synonymous with Lyon, whereas it wasn't, it, it doesn't even come from Lyon. It comes from like the Loire Valley. So we basically know that praline started being made in Montargis near Paris in the 17th century. And by the time that Diderot starts talking about them in his encyclopedia in the middle of the 18th century, they can at this point be pink. But we have no idea when. Or why, or who was like, I know what I'm going to do with this, these nut, this nut sugar mixture. I'm going to turn it pink. Like it just, there's no, there's, there's no fun story about this. It's just a weird anomaly. Well, we have a, the, the like pink praline tart is a thing here. It's probably the iconic dessert. Right. And I don't know if we'll talk about it more. If you want to talk about it more, but we're talking about it now. (laughs) We are going to talk about it in our Leon episode, but I will, I will spoil. Well, I'll, I'll hint at a spoiler, which is that it's another one of those weird marketing inventions. It's not that ancestral or traditional, but it is omnipresent in Leon. We are going to talk about it. Do you like it? No. Yeah. It's very sweet. No, I hate it. I don't hate it. It's It's just pointless. It's sugar. You know what it's like? It's like if you took a pecan pie and you took all the pecans out of it and you just ate like sweet, sweet, sweet in shortbread. No. That would still have more flavor. That would still have more flavor than a, than a pink praline tart. But we'll talk about that. We will. In, we will. In our final episode of the season where we deep dive into Lyon. Right. For now, we're talking about this brioche that basically is... So in Saint-Genix-sur-Yerre in 1880, there is this baker who marries a woman called François Guillou. And she came from a little town nearby in Isère, which is not in Savoie. And she brought with her this recipe for a brioche flavored with orange blossom water and decorated, garnished with a single praline. And he started making them in his bakery and people loved them. And they were like, we we think this is great, but could you like ramp up the praline? And so he started adding more and more praline and, you know, everybody got very, very excited about it. It became really, really popular throughout France because it was introduced um, at one of the Paris World's Fairs 
And so it became kind of synonymous with the region. But the actual brioche cake sort of thing has a much deeper history before the the advent of pralines. And that's the fact that when Sicily was annexed to the Duchy of uh, Savoy in 1713. Makes a lot of sense. So yes, Savoy (laughs) extended as far as Sicily. Why not? They have this legend of St. Agatha in Sicily, who in the third century didn't want to sleep with the Roman proconsul. And so he, as you do, had her boobs cut off. Wow. And so we make round brioches to in memory of St. Agatha's boobs. Wow, that's <laughs> that's rough. That's a horrible story that I I'm not sure how to process. <laughs> well, we can I mean it's it's ridiculous. It's also it's funny to me. I mean, brioche, I guess brioche and boobs does kind of make sense. We do also have a slang term for boobs in French, which is miche. And miche is the word you use for like a big round loaf of bread. So either way, we're just seeing boobs in everything in this country. Yeah, that's funny. Tune in next week to find out more about Francoise and her region, which is not Savoie. We're just going to end on boob, boob slang, French boob slang. Boob slang. Yeah. Tune in next week to find out all about Francoise's region, the Dauphiné, as well as some of the amazing wines from this area. Yes, I'm going to talk about the Rhone wines. We're going to stick mostly with the Northern Rhone because I feel like the Southern Rhone is a whole different can of worms, but it'll be really exciting. And then we're going to round out this season in our final episode after next week's episode, all about Lyon, my city, the best city in the world. Debatable, but it's going to be a great end to our first season of Terror Podcast. We have two more episodes left. Yeah. And in the meantime, please feel free to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts and follow us on the social medias if you want to hear us being irreverent about French food on other platforms. Caroline is at Wine Dine Caroline and I am at Emily underscore in underscore France. And don't forget to review and rate. And you know what? If you don't have an iPhone, we still love you. Do it on whatever you're listening on. Just just tell people about us and spread the word. We are so happy to be here talking shit in your ear. This episode of the Terroir Podcast was produced by Jennifer Garrity for Paris Underground Radio. For more on this show and shows like it, please visit parisundergroundradio.com.